Uh, actually, sorry, Bailey's going to lead us in a song, and then right after that. Good morning. So happy to be with you all this morning. Um, even even on a rainy morning, it is it is okay because um, it is bright and sunshiny in here, and um, I'm just thrilled thrilled. I've been looking forward to this so much, and um, I am just honored to be here with you this morning. So this morning we are going to be taking a dive into Psalm 88. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn to Psalm 88, that is where we are going to be this morning. And I want to begin by telling you a little bit about Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, on January 23rd, 1841 wrote a letter to his first law partner, a man named John T. Stewart in Washington. And in his letter, Abraham wrote these words, I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on the entire earth. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode, which means predict or foretell, I awfully forebode, I shall not. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better, it appears to me. Such sad words. That's one of the saddest quotes that was recorded by Abraham Lincoln that we have today. We know now something that many people did not know then, that Lincoln suffered from periods of depression throughout his life. He had a very traumatic childhood. If you've not read about Abraham Lincoln, he experienced some very difficult things. He experienced a lot of death. People who he loved who were very close to him, he lost. And it was very, very difficult for him. And throughout his life, he struggled with periods of darkness that brought him very, very low. And I was thinking about those words, and I was thinking how, man, sometimes we look at the life of Lincoln and we don't see that. We don't see the depression. We don't see that darkness. We see the good. We see the great things that he did. But how many of us can relate to those words that he wrote? How many of us have a, 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 an appearance all the time of being happy and that everything's good and that everything's okay, but inside we struggle with, with, with hard things, with suffering, with pain, with misery? Have you ever felt miserable? Have you ever felt alone? Have you ever felt completely hopeless? Have you ever been in a situation where you just did not think it was going to get better? That you felt like if your feelings were equally distributed to everyone on this earth, there would not be one cheerful person. Have you ever felt like that? Or have you ever known somebody or been with somebody close to you who was walking through that? The 88th Psalm has been labeled one of the most gloomy chapters of the entire Bible. 
It begins and it ends with sorrow. Why in the world would I have picked Psalm 88? (laughs) Why would that be the psalm I chose to speak to you about on Friday morning? (laughs) Because there's something else there. There's a hidden message in this psalm that can change your life. And I am excited to share it with you this morning. In Psalm 88, the psalmist cries out for God to listen. And then he describes the agony that he is in. The troubles that have brought him almost to death. He is in a deep pit of despair. He calls it a pit. And he sees no light. He hears no sound of help. And he is in utter darkness. That's how he feels. It is a psalm of lament. So let's pause for just a second, and I'm going to read it. I want to read it in its entirety, so that as we go through it, you've got the whole picture to start off with. Okay, so here we go. Psalm 88. O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength, adrift among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and who are cut off from your hand. You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. You have put away my acquaintances acquaintances far from me. You have made me an, an abomination to them. I am shut up, and I cannot get out. My eye wastes away because of affliction. Lord, I have called daily upon you. I have stretched out my hands to you. Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave or your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But to you I have cried out, O Lord. And in the morning my prayer comes before you. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I have been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They came around me all day long like water. They engulfed me all together. Loved one and friend, you have put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness. And that's where it ends. It ends in darkness. It's a psalm of lament. And that means that the words of this psalm express sorrow. I like the way that one commentator defined a lament psalm as a wailing of a heart before God. But it doesn't follow the typical pattern of a lament. Psalm 88 does not follow the typical pattern that a lament follows. It doesn't contain certain petitions. And it doesn't conclude with a statement of praise. Like most laments will end with some sort of light, with some sort of praise statement, something like that. 
only petition that it has is found in the very first two verses. One request. Listen. God, listen to me. Incline your ear to me. And then at the end, there's just this abrupt ending. No closure. Just a sad statement. I have no loved ones or friends. I'm in darkness. That's how it ends. Why is there such a depressing psalm in our Bibles? Why is it there? We're going to talk about it. We're going to work our way through it. And I want to I want to show you something wonderful because this psalm has so much value. It has an encouraging purpose. In fact, hidden in this psalm is something that can carry us through the most difficult of days. So let's start with the title. The title of this psalm. Now the titles that are put in in the psalms, they're above the actual uh, text of the psalm, are, are most likely not inspired. They were probably added. They were probably added a little bit later. But there's value to the title. There's an important thing that you can sometimes find in the title. It's a good thing to consider when you look at it. And really, most of the titles are found in the Septuagint. And we know that if they're found in the Septuagint, then they had to have been there before the 2nd century BC when the Septuagint was translated from the Hebrew Bible. So, something early, early on, may have been added to this psalm in order to summarize or give some sort of context to what you're about to read. So it's important. Sometimes the title can give you some information on the origin or something about the background of the psalm. So, we don't have anything in this title that gives us a date. We don't have anything that tells us the circumstances of the writing. But we do learn a little bit about the author and we learn a little bit about the subject. So here's what the title says. Now, I'm reading from a New King James Version Bible. It says, A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the chief musician set to Mahalath Leonoth, a contemplation of Heman the Ezrahite. Okay, wow, what in the world? What does that mean? What does that even mean? Well, we will look first at the first couple words. A song, a psalm. This, this designation of these two words, it's, it's this difference in these two words, would kind of delineate that this psalm may have been meant to be sung and may have even had the accompaniment of an instrument. A song and a psalm. The words were meant to be sung and possibly accompanied by some sort of musical instrument. <laughs> It's specified as a psalm of the sons of Korah. Now you're going to have to go back and remember the story of Korah in the wilderness. Do you remember the rebellion of Korah in the wilderness of Paran? Do you remember that story? It's found in um, Numbers chapter 16. So we can kind of flip over there really quick just to kind of remind us of what was happening back here in Numbers chapter 16. There was a rebellion specifically against Moses and Aaron. And remember, Korah stood up with a group of people and he said, you and Aaron, speaking to Moses, you and Aaron have too much power. You've taken too much upon yourselves. Why should you be exalted above all the others of us? And so he was challenging Moses and Aaron in their authority. And that did not make God happy. 
And it would turn out, as we see later on down in the chapter 16 of Numbers, that the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and said, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And as we read on, it talks about Korah and his family. And as as the words were being spoken by Moses, telling them what kind of consequence they were going to have for challenging the authority that God had given to Moses and to Aaron as the, as the priest. It says in verse 31, It came to pass as he finished speaking all these words that the ground split apart under them and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah with all their goods. Korah met a terrible fate. But we find out later in Numbers chapter 26 verse 10 that not all of Korah's family was killed. Not all of Korah's family was engulfed in that ground opening event that happened. Numbers 26 verse 10 says the Lord opened its mouth, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah when that company died when the fire devoured 250 men and they became a sign. Nevertheless, the children of Korah did not die. Some of the family of Korah did not die in that event. And so we have the Korahites, descendants of Korah, the leader of that rebellion, and they were Levites. So who were the Korahites? What did they do? What was their role? You can find out a little bit more about them in 1st and 2nd Chronicles. In 1st Chronicles chapter 6 verses 31 through 48, we find that the Korahites were appointed to minister in song, in worship. That was their ministry. They were the they were the singers. And then in 1st Corinthians or 1st Chronicles chapter 9 verses 17 to 33, we find that they were given the responsibility of guardians and gatekeepers of the tent of the tabernacle and other services they were given charge over that had to do with the tabernacle and with Sabbath in particular. Later, in 2 Chronicles, chapter 20, verse 19, it describes the Korahites along with the Kohathites as families that were singers of praise in the tabernacle. And it's believed that this psalm, Psalm 88, was a hymn that was taken from their songbook. It was a song of the sons of Korah. So that's just interesting because there are other titles that are attributed to to the Korahites. You'll see their names in some other titles in the Psalms. So, so that's a little bit of interesting background. Then you have in this title to the chief musician, or some of your Bibles might say to the leader. So this psalm is being directed to the one who would be leading this choir, the overseer or the director of the choir. And then it goes on to say, according to, or your translation may say, set to Mahalath Leonoth. Well, what is Mahalath Leonoth? What does that even mean? And so there's a little bit of an ambiguity around this. There's some differing in, um, in opinion over what is being talked about here. Mahalath is a name for a tune. It can be a name of a tune. It can be the name of a musical instrument. And it's also used a couple of different times in the Old Testament as a proper name for a woman. Mahalath. 
So there's some different ways that it's used. Also, it's been pointed out by some commentators that this word mahalath is very similar to a Hebrew word that means sickness or that means um, affliction. And so that's kind of interesting that that word might mean sickness when we think about this being a lament psalm about someone who is struggling with an affliction. Very interesting. In the Septuagint, the word leonoth is actually translated to something different. It's translated to the Greek word aprokrinomai. Aprokrinomai is a word that means to answer or to respond to. Maybe referring to the style of song that this was. Kind of like a chant. Like somebody says one part and then there's a repetition that comes after. So, in summary, what we get from this so far is that this was a song that was possibly taken from a hymn book of the sons of Korah that was possibly sung under the direction of a choir master having to do with some sort of affliction, maybe even an illness of some kind. This is our first glimpse into the suffering of the psalmist. And then you've got this little phrase at the end, a contemplation of Heman, the Ezraite. Well, who is he? A maskal. A maskal is something that maybe your, your text might say. Contemplation might be translated maskal. And a maskal is a word that is found in the title of 13 different psalms. It is a participle that comes from a verb that means to make wise or prudent. Sometimes these psalms that are referred to as maskals are psalms of instruction. They're giving some sort of lesson to the reader or to the person who is singing it. One writer said that Psalm 88 is a maskal in the sense that the sorrows of one saint are the lessons to another. The sorrow that one is experiencing can be a lesson to someone else. The idea is that we can learn something. We can learn something from this psalmist who is deep in sorrow. Who is Heman? The author of this maskal. The short answer is we don't know. We're not sure. We're not sure. There are a couple different possibilities. There's one thought that um, in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 31, there is a man named Heman who is known as a wise man. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 6, he's described as being one of five sons of a man named Zerah. And he is also the grandson of Judah. So that's interesting. The name Heman itself means faithful. Faithful. So we can know that for sure. The other thought about who this Heman is, is there's another one that's mentioned in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, chapter 15, 16, and 25. And this, this Heman was the son of Joel, a grandson of Samuel, and the first of three chief Levites to conduct the vocal and instrumental music of the tabernacle during the reign of David. So that would kind of fit in too, if that's, if that's who this was, somebody that would have been involved in music and in direction of a, a choir, possibly. So which one was it? And what was their relationship to the Korahites? And what does it mean that he was an Ezraite? And why was he in sorrow? We don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. We have uh, some things that we, we can't know. But let's get in and see what exactly this person is writing about. Because whatever or whomever he is, 
he is someone who experienced deep sorrow. He is somebody who who experienced something hard, something that brought him a lot of pain, a lot of misery. So here we go. Let's dive in. We mentioned that Psalm 88 is a lament, a crying out in grief. That is the actual definition of a lament. And specifically, this is an individual lament. That's how we would classify this psalm. We mentioned that it's unique because it doesn't turn from a a petition to a praise, but instead it just begins with one simple request, listen to me, and it ends in despair. This psalmist is in terrible distress, and it's brought him to a state that is near death. And on top of that, he feels rejected by God, and he is totally alone. He's in anguish. And part of this psalm, he sets the blame on God. He blames God for it. He's in a dark, dark place. When you look at the psalm, and this is how we're going to go through it, it's structured in three kind of clear sections. So we'll go and hit the sections just one by one very quickly, and then we'll wrap it all up into what we learn from this. The psalm is divided really into the first section being the first cry out for help, and it's from verse 1 to verse 9a, the first part of verse 9. And then from 9b on to verse 12 is the second section, and then from verse 13 to verse 18 is the third section. So let's look how it starts. O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. One thing that we have to see from the very beginning of this psalm, from the very beginning, this psalmist recognizes God as his Savior. It is the little glimpse of light. It's like the one ray of light in this whole dark psalm. That this psalmist says, Oh Lord, my God, it's individual. He is my God. And he has been in charge of my salvation. He recognizes that from the very beginning, he sees God as a source of life and a giver of hope. This is a relationship that is personal and it's confident. Oh Lord, God of my salvation. And then he tells God that he has been crying out in his presence day and night. And his one request, hear me. Hear me in my suffering. And then verses 3 through 5 begin to describe that suffering. Verses 3 through 5 begin to tell why this psalmist is in so much pain. Look in verse 3. First it says, his, fo- his soul is full of troubles and his life draws near to Sheol. And then look in verse 4. He's counted among those who go down to the pit and who have no help. And then in verse 5, he is like those who are already dead and lie in the grave, cut off from God and remembered no more. Repeatedly in this section, the psalmist used metaphors that describe death. And he is saying, I can't get away from it. I cannot resist it. I can't escape it. This is sections 3 through 5. But then look what happens in verses 6 through 9. There's a shift. He's talking about the sorrows, the difficulties, what he's struggling with, what he's suffering from. And then look in verse 6, 7, 8, and 9. You have laid me in the lowest pit. 
in darkness and in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You have afflicted me with all your waves. You have put my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an abomination to them. Do you see what how it's changed? He has gone from talking about his suffering to identifying God as the cause. You have done this to me. It is your wrath that has brought these afflictions upon me. But then, I want you to see this too. He blames God. But he never, ever accuses God of injustice. He never says, you had no right to do that to me. You had no right to send me into this place. He never, never does that. He never accuses God of injustice. (coughs) Whatever the psalmist is experiencing, whatever it is, he feels like his life is in jeopardy. And it's made worse by the fact that he doesn't have any friends. He feels as though he is already dead. You know, it's one thing to suffer. It's another thing entirely to suffer alone. You know? It's one thing to suffer and to have your people, to have your church, to have your sisters, to be surrounded by people to help you. It's another thing entirely to feel like you have no one. It makes it harder. Makes it lonely. And that's where the psalmist is. Some people have speculated maybe maybe he had leprosy. Maybe there was something that he had that required him to be separated from people. Maybe there was something like that that he had to be isolated. Maybe. Maybe. But then look in verse 9. The first part, where this first section ends, 9a. He says, My eye wastes away because of affliction. Another version renders it this way My eye grows dim with sorrow. Tears, maybe? Tears? My eye, I can't see. My eyes are dim. Is he suffering so much that his eyes are full of tears? Perhaps. What is he grieving? He's grieving his suffering. He's grieving his impending death. He's grieving his solitude. Loneliness is painful. Loneliness is painful. We need to be so mindful of that. And I'm going to throw this in as a little aside because I teach high schoolers. And high schoolers, one of their biggest things that they complain about, or not complain, that they struggle with, is loneliness. So ironic in a social media world where they have thousands of friends. But they tell me, I'm lonely. Oh, that's so sad. And we need to, we need to keep that in mind as mentors for young people. They need friends. They need real Friends. They need real friends. So let's look at the next section, verses 9b through 12. Lord, I have called daily upon you. I have stretched out my hands to you. In verses 1 and 2, he said, Lord, I'm calling out to you day and night. 
He's praying through the night. Here he says, it's every day. I am daily calling on you. And I want you to try to picture this scene. I want you to picture this man heartbroken. Tears possibly coming from his eyes. And his hands outstretched like this. And he is saying, I have stretched out my hands to you. I've called upon you every day. Just picture that scene. It, it, it brings us back to his very first request. God, hear me. Hear what I am asking you. And then what happens in this section is you have this series of rhetorical questions. He, he calls out to God these questions. Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave or your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Two thoughts here. Two things. These are rhetorical questions. So the answer that we're assuming is no. No. The answer is no. No. The dead will not arise and praise you. No. Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave? No. But why is he asking these questions? What is his reason? And so two, two different kind of schools of thought here. And the first school of thought is that he is appealing to God to save him so that he can do those things for God. He's saying, rescue me, pull me out of this so that I can praise you, so that I can declare your righteousness, so I can be the one to talk of your wonders. Save me so that I can lift you up and show people, be a witness, be a, a testimony to people of your goodness. That's one thought. Another thought is that he's questioning God's attributes among the dead and thinking that he's almost there. He's one foot in. He's one foot in the grave. And he is thinking, God is, God is absent from the place I'm about to be. And that thought drives him even lower. That thought drives him even lower because a place where God is not is a place where hope is not. And then we have this last section, verses 13 through 18, a final cry. But to you I have cried out, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. Listen, he's, cry, he's crying out to God through the night. He's crying out to God daily. He's crying out to God every morning. Do you see the picture here? He is continually praying. He is in continual prayer to God. All day, all night, when I wake up, as I'm in bed, I'm crying out to God these prayers, this prayer. Look at the first word of verse 13. Conjunction. Connecting something together. He has just talked about all these questions. He's asked these rhetorical questions about death. About God's absence. About His presence not being there in the world of the dead. And then he starts verse 13 with this word, but. But there is so much power in that word but because even though death is pressing in on him, death is at his door, he is going to continue to live and he's going to continue to pray. He is not going to stop. And then he presents God with two more questions. These are not rhetorical questions. These are why questions. He says, number one, why would you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? 
Why do you cast off my soul? And why do you hide your face from me? Honest questions from a man who is hurting and is desperately seeking answers. Why? had one commentator that referred to this questioning as holy boldness. You know, we can come before the throne of God with boldness. That's what we learn in in the book of Hebrews. Come before his throne of grace in boldness. And that's what this man is doing. He doesn't understand why he has been ignored by God. So rather than just going on and on and just venting about his problems, he says, God, why? Why is it happening? I think this speaks well of his faith. I think that shows us a man whose mind, or who's seeking to know the mind of God. Why are you doing this, God? He's looking for reason behind it. There's got to be a reason. Why is it happening? Do we think about that? What is the reason? Why am I in a place of suffering? There's something that God knows that I don't. That's for sure. Do we seek to see the mind of God in those times? The last four verses of the psalm are like this plunge. It's like this plunge into utter darkness. In verse 15, he characterizes his affliction as being with him since he was a child. And now he is left desperate. He's been near death for a long time. And now his thinking is no longer ordered and calm. It says here that he is distraught in verse 15. I am distraught. And then in verses 16 and 17, he describes God's wrath as having swept over him like floodwaters. And you can look back in verse 7 of the psalm, and he says, Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You've afflicted me with all of your waves. Well, the waves have reached a new level here. The the waves aren't just washing up to him, coming near him. He is fully submerged. He says, I am drowning under these waves now. And then all of a sudden, the psalm ends abruptly in verse 18. Loved one and friend, you have put far from me and my acquaintance... I don't know why I'm struggling with this word today. Friends. Friends into darkness. One version, the New Revised Standard, says it like this. You have caused friend and neighbor to shun me. My companions are in darkness. This is how it ends. He's completely alone. He has no one. What's really interesting here is the Hebrew. The way that the Hebrew reads, the last verse, that last verse that I just read, loved one in front of you, but far from me, and my acquaintance friends into darkness. Two words in Hebrew. Two words. One word in Hebrew, my friends or companions. The other Hebrew word, darkness. No verb. Friends, darkness. Put together. That verbless construction can be translated like this. My friends are darkness. Darkness is my friend. That's all I have left. My friend is darkness. Oh, so sad. Such a contrast to, oh, Lord God of my salvation. That's how it starts. And it ends, my friends are darkness. 
The psalmist feels like he has been abandoned by God. But has he? Has he been abandoned? As we wrap this up, I want us to think back to the question that I asked you at the beginning. Why in the world is this psalm in the Bible? Why is this psalm included in the book of Psalms? And here's the answer, guys. It's real. It is Sorry, it's real. That's real life right here. Sometimes it doesn't end in a praise statement. Sometimes your prayer doesn't end in a ray of light. Sometimes it ends in darkness. What do we learn from that? What do we learn from that? We pray in this life prayers of suffering. If you haven't prayed a prayer of suffering yet, it's coming. You will pray a prayer of pain. And sometimes God does not respond in the way we want. He doesn't. We might ask for something and we won't get it. What is your response going to be when that happens? What is your response going to be when you feel forsaken? When the writer of Psalm 88 experienced that, you know how he responded? In faith. He responded in faith because look guys what happened as he is slipping into darkness. As he's about to say my friends are darkness. You know what he's still doing? He's still praying. He's still continuing to call out to God. Oh my word. He might feel like God has abandoned him but he has not abandoned God. And we know that God didn't abandon him either. Although he may have felt that way. Do you remember Job? God's suffering servant Job? Job never gave up. He never gave up in the suffering. I saw this quote somewhere and I love it. The Lord's silence does not mean his absence. His silent presence is enough for those who trust him. Psalm 88 at its very core is a psalm of extraordinary faith. It is faith in the pit. Another message that we have that's hidden in here. It's hidden in the it's hidden under the grief, it's hidden under the solitude, the helplessness. You know what's hidden here? A message of hope. And you may look at that and say, "Lord, I don't see it. Where? Where's the hope here?" The hope is the lament. The hope is the lament. In itself, in and of itself, this lament is hope because the psalmist is crying out to God. Because he has not left God. He is continuing to cry out in the darkness. And even though he's angry, even though he's confused, even though he's frustrated, he sees God as a source of hope. And he lifts his lament to God. Do you remember what Jesus Christ called out from the cross? In that dark, darkest moment of history. You don't get a pit darker than this. Our good and loving and kind Savior on the cross, crucified, cries out to God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? None have suffered more than Christ. None have suffered more than Jesus Christ. But in his anguish alone on the cross, he still cried out to the Father. There is so much comfort in these words written by one commentator. Listen to this. It's beautiful. While the sins of God abides, death has not triumphed. 
As long as there are prayers of lament being lifted to heaven, hope can be found because if God is, then hope is. Beautiful, beautiful lament psalm because it is a psalm of hidden hope. We learn to be persistent in prayer as Jesus taught his disciples in Luke chapter 18. We remember to don't give up in prayer. Keep praying. And then we also are reminded that everything in this life will not end in the way that we like. But the psalmist here is a friend that is reminding us that we are not alone. And he is whispering, I've been there. I have felt that suffering like you have. Be faithful. Don't stop praying. Psalm 88 may be known as a psalm of unrelieved gloom and anguish, but it is also a hidden message of hope because it is offered up to the God of hope who listens, who is present, and who in life and in death is the God of our salvation. Thank you very much. Thank you.